me in God's Word. We're going to be reading Matthew chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, take the one out in front of you. It's on page 676 in your pew Bibles. Um, page 676, um, Matthew chapter 3. And uh, we begin at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened up, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And I pray that it would, it would speak truth into our hearts, that we would be by your pre, warmed by your presence here in this place where two or more have gathered in a special way. We know that you are here. God, we pray that you would be with us. Be with me as I speak, that these words would not be my own, but they would just serve as, as a, an opportunity to further illuminate your word, your truth, your wisdom, and our identity in you that we might leave this place changed to be more like you than when we came. And all God's people said, amen. Well, there, there are certain defining moments in our lives, things that, that happen in an instant, but they, they have the power to change us, to change who we are. I remember when, when our first son Jacob was born, I think it was right before he was born, there was an older gentleman in our church. He said to me, Tom, you're about to enter a fraternity of people, that once you enter this, from this point forward, you're always going to be a part of. You're now a dad. And that might sound simple and obvious, but the way he put it to me as I was thinking about all of the preparations and things, it really caused me to sit and think. And even though we have four children in our home now, that one was unique because it was in that moment that I became a father for the first time. Oh, you could say the same thing about other moments, graduation, marriage, becoming a homeowner, maybe an accomplishment, an award, or promotion at work. These are moments that change our lives, not just in the moment, but they kind of become a part of the fabric of our identity, who we are. But likewise, not-so-positive moments can have a similar impact. Uh, a cancer diagnosis, uh, divorce, the sp loss of a spouse or a parent, uh, DUI. These, these events can also change how we see ourselves and how others see us as well. And, and if we leave ourselves at that, what we, can't, what we quickly find is is it will tend to, to gravitate toward one extreme or the other. We'll either, we'll either constantly try to build ourselves up in all of the good moments by finding our identity as the perfect parent or as a successful business person, or maybe we'll gravitate the other direction and we'll try to hide and ignore the not-so-positive moments, hoping that if maybe we stuff them away someplace, nobody will notice problem, of course, is we're all kind of a blend of both, aren't we? And a lot of things that happen in between. And so defining our identity in either one can lead us to a life of fear. Fear that if I don't do enough of the right things, 
or if I do too many of the wrong things, that I'm going to be left rejected, rejected by the people around me, rejected by myself, or even by God. And so that's what we're talking about today in our second week in our series on fear. We're talking about the fear of rejection. And, and if you weren't in church last week as we're kind of getting into the new year, I'd encourage you go online, listen to the message because it kind of serves as a, a base off of which we're going to springboard into each of these fears that many of us face. And what we learned last week is, is that we all face fears. We all struggle with fear. Fear of the future, the unknown, our health, being alone, that you're not going to be able to provide for your loved ones. The list goes on. And we, we established last week that in and of itself, fear is not a sin. There's nothing wrong with you if you have fear. But at the same time, Paul writes this in 2 Timothy 1. He says, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. We all have fears, but in Christ, he wants to unlock, unleash a new life for us so that we are no longer called to live by our fears, that our fears should not be the rudder that determines the direction of our lives. And, and last week we saw that in, in the story of Jesus walking on water. How many of you remember that story? Whether you're here or not, you know the story, right? He, he walked on water, came up to the boat. Peter said, I'm not sure it's you. Tell me to come out. Peter said, or Jesus has come out of the water. And, and he comes out on the water and he's able to walk on the water until what? What happened that led Peter to start drowning? Anybody? Took his eyes off of Jesus, right? He took his eyes off of Jesus and started to look at the waves and the wind, the very thing that threatened his life, and he started to fall in. And, and what we learn in that, among many other things, is, is that we all face those kinds of circumstances, things in our lives that threaten who we are, situations that have the potential to drown us, to drown our reputation and our identity. And the truth is our faith in God doesn't necessarily protect us from those situations happening. They do happen. But what our faith in God does is it does protect us so that we might be able to walk through them, survive them, and even thrive in the midst of our fears. And that's exactly what we're going to see here in this example of Jesus and the way he lives his life, but specifically where he finds his identity. Now, today is, is the third Sunday after Christmas. Can you believe that it's only been three Sundays? I actually had to look at my phone and make sure that was correct when I was practicing this morning, but it's only been three. And in many churches all around the world, they're, they're actually studying the same passage that we're studying today as they go from Christmas and Jesus' birth into his earthly ministry. Because most of what we read about Jesus in the Gospels actually happened in his adulthood, and specifically in a three-year period that began with his baptism and ends with his death and his resurrection. And so we're going to start today and begin with Jesus' baptism. Just before our reading, if you're looking uh, with me in your Bibles, you'll see this. Uh, you'll see that we just met John the Baptist. This is Jesus' cousin. He's a few months older than Jesus, and God has called him into the world to prepare the world for Jesus. Now, John was a rather odd character. 
He wore camel's hair clothing. He, he ate bugs and, and wild honey. Does anybody have, have an Uncle John that does those kinds of things in their family? Sat around? No? <laughs> it might be like it, though. Like they wear weird clothes and they eat weird things and they show up late or whatever. Here's the thing. John was that guy, but he didn't really care. He didn't care what anybody thought about him, which is a good thing because his whole purpose was to share a pretty straight and straightforward direct message. In verse 2, it says this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, if he was only called to say the kingdom of heaven has come near, that wouldn't that'd be great, right? Like, we'd all love to have that assignment. But it begins with this word, Repent, and the word repent comes from a Greek word that we transliterate as metanoia. Have you ever heard that word before, metanoia? It, it, means, it means literally to turn 180 degrees. So you're facing one direction, and you turn to face another direction. John was calling people to metanoia. He was calling people to repentance. In essence, what he was doing is he was preparing people by recalibrating their interior compass to focus due north so that when Jesus came, they would be prepared to follow him, that they would be pointing in the right direction. And this is what he said in, in verse 11. He said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me is coming the one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John knew his place. He, he knew that he was preparing people to follow the Lord. What he didn't know is that Jesus was going to actually go through the same recalibration process that he was calling others to do, even though he didn't need to be calibrated. And he came to his cousin in the Jordan River. And that's the reading we're reading today. Again, verse 13, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John is looking at Jesus and saying, you're already pointing north. You show me. You're the one who should be baptizing me. But Jesus said, let it be so now, for it is proper to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And so John consented. Now, Jesus had to do this, and, and it was for a variety of different reasons, but the focus that we're going to make today is that his identity was going to be defined in the moment of his baptism, that who he is was going to be spoken so that no matter what happens next, no matter what he went through, he would know who he is. Verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went out of the water, and at that moment heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and a lightning on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Like, what an incredible moment, isn't it? We read it on a page, and it just doesn't quite speak the way it must have spoken if you were there. The heavens opened up to remind Jesus in an audible way who he is, his identity. And this is essential because what we're going to learn is that whose you are informs who you are. Whose you are informs who you are. Jesus is God's son. And that very truth is going to define the rest of his walking days on earth. Who Jesus is bookends his life at the beginning and the end and his whole life, really. His identity is defined in this moment of his baptism, but it's also that same identity that's going to lead him to the cross. He's literally going to be killed because he went around saying he is the son of God. And at the same time, we can say, 
as, as Christians, if you consider yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, that our life is bookended by the same truth. When you were baptized, you were set apart as a child of God. If, if you were baptized as an infant, it's your parents saying, this child is not my own. This is God's child first. And so that moment you are set apart, and, and of course that moment is also what informs how we cling to God as a child of his when we die. When we die, we know that because our life isn't our own, that it's in Christ and that he rose from the grave and he's the first of many, and, and we cling to that truth. It gives us hope in the future. It's what Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 6, 4. He said, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. But here's the thing about what Paul is saying. That new life begins now. It's not just for when we die. It's not just to celebrate on the day of our baptism. And yet how many of us ignore the importance of that identity between those two points in our life? We celebrate baptism, right? We have everybody over for cake and ice cream afterwards. We do all these wonderful things. We cling to this identity in death that is hope-filled in the midst of those moments. But in between, our identity with God in the midst of parenting and marriage and paying the bills and our health, what often happens is, is we forget. We forget about who God says we are. And, and instead what happens is we allow our identity to be stolen by ourselves or stolen by the world around us. And I think about that. I think about uh, two years ago when I was reading this, it reminded me I I saw some suspicious activity on my credit card, two credit cards in particular. And, um, and then this last summer, my wife, Alyssa, she had the same thing happen to our, our debit card. And we became one of the 33% or so Americans who have been the victims of identity theft. How many of you have experienced something like that at some point? See, about, if you look around, about a third of the room uh, would say the same thing. Uh, Ju- one of the cards was actually my church card, and our treasurer, Julie, was in the first service. And I, I asked her, I said, I don't remember, where were those charges? They were like in Singapore. The person who had my card was, was living a life that I, I've never lived. Like, they were out having adventures and all this stuff. And, and, and the truth is, when, when this happened, before that, I never really worried about it. Like, I, I was never really too concerned uh, about this happening, not because I didn't think it would, but because I know it's so common that most banks these days have all sorts of protections in place. All you got to do is just call up the bank, they'll take the charges away, um, they'll send you a new card, and it's, it's all good. And, and that's exactly what happened. It, when, it, when it happened, I called the bank, and all of it got taken care of. But what I was surprised about was how I still felt surprisingly unsettled. That when it happened, the thought of there being someone out there using my name, using my identity that wasn't me, it, it just felt kind of eerie and violating and wrong. And I think about that because in a spiritual sense, fear has the potential to lead us to a similar place. It, 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 can, it can rob us of who we really are. It can redefine us. I said at the beginning, 
our fears are normal to a certain extent. Fear is natural. Fear happens. But if we allow it to take over, it consumes us. And one of the first ways it can consume us is by stealing our identity in Christ and suggesting that we're somebody we're not. And I'm not just making this up. This is exactly what happened to Jesus. Right after his baptism, if you look in your Bibles with me, just afterwards, he's led into the wilderness by the Spirit. And he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was tempted by the devil. And the devil tempted him in three ways. And the first one seems like the most obvious. If you take a look, Matthew 4, verse 3. The tempter came to Jesus and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Tell these stones to become bread. Now, why would the devil tempt Jesus with stones becoming bread? Anybody? He's hungry, right? And that's, that's always how I read it, right? Like, like he's hungry, and it's a pretty obvious way. Like, like you know, the devil, is, he kind of kicks you where it hurts. Like, he goes, you know, he goes to that place. He, he goes to your weakness, and, and that's, that's what happened. But notice here that the real attack isn't about food at all. It's, it's about Jesus' identity. Look at the very beginning. If you are the son of God. If you are the Son of God. Now, just a few verses earlier, verse 17 of chapter 3, God himself said, this is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus was just baptized. Heaven literally just opened up and said who he was. And now the devil is whispering in his ear, is that who you really are? Is that who you really are? Because if you're not the Son of God, then you're going to be hungry. And you might never eat again. And if you never eat again, you might die in this desert. And if you die in this desert, then what? And here's the thing. Fear whispers the same lie to you and me. It tells us over and over and over again, you're not enough. You're not going to make it. Things are not going to be okay. And it's so easy to give into that voice. So easy. We've all done it. So easy to give into that voice when you're hungry and when you're in pain and when you're afraid. The problem is that even if Jesus turns the stone into bread and eats it, he's going to be hungry again because that's how bread works. Like, if you go home and you eat it a sandwich for lunch today, you're going to be hungry by 4 o'clock tomorrow, and you're going to need to go out and support the youth at the pizza ranch, right? And if you eat at the pizza ranch, you like how I just slipped that in there right into the message? You're going to get up tomorrow and go, I want pizza. I don't remember why. But then the next day you're going to wake up, and your stomach is going to empty, and you're going to be hungry. You're going to be hungry again and again and again and again because that's how life works. It's also how it works with anything outside of God that we use to define who we are. Your greatest accomplishment will never be enough. The amount of money you have in the bank will never be enough. You'll be looking for more. You'll be looking for the next one and the next one and the next one. The same can be said about the other side. And so as the tempter tries this, this tactic on Jesus, and we've all been the victim of, of the deceiver doing this to us as well. Here's how Jesus responds. He says, 
He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, Jesus says, I don't need bread to tell me that I'm God's son. He told me himself, and so I will live on that. And friends, in our fears, God has given you an entire book that says the same thing. God himself gave Jesus the word made flesh so that when you hear the voice of the deceiver, you could be sure of 1 John 4, 4, which says you, dear children, are from God and you have overcome those voices because the one inside of you is greater than the one who is in the world. So that the, when the one in the world tells you that you're nothing because of what you have or have not done, you can say, I am standing with the psalmist who writes, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Who cares what anybody thinks when the creator of the universe says you are wonderful? When the deceiver tells you that you're not important, let the word of God remind you, 1 Peter 2.9, that you are a chosen people. That you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possessions, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And as I read those things, I just think, man, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if, if your spouse doesn't see you that way. I'm sorry if you had parents that didn't see you that way. I'm sorry if your neighbor doesn't see you that way. But maybe more important for those of you who would say yes to any of those truths, it's that you know that God sees you that way. God sees you as a royal priest, a prince, a princess, an heir to the kingdom. But before you go and rub it in the face of those who don't see you that way, remember that God wants to see them that way too. So that when we're afraid and we can't go on any longer, we can hold tight to the words of Paul in Romans 8 that says, In all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because it's in him who loved us that defines who we are. It doesn't mean that the wonderful things in this life are not meant to be enjoyed. It doesn't mean that the, the painful things in this life are, are not meant to be repented of and learned from. But when you find yourself without the love of others, you could be comforted to know that God's love never changes that when the successes and failures come and go in your life like waves, your position and value and identity in Christ will not change because just like Jesus was defined in his baptism, so were you. Paul said it in Colossians 3. You died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ and God. doesn't mean we live disconnected lives, but we live this life with an open hand and an awareness that our real life is hidden and protected and held by Jesus himself. And that transforms how we live this life because whose you are informs who you are. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this truth that I believe every one of us needs to hear. That we are not defined by the ways of this world or the voice of the deceiver in our ears. God, that, that we're not even defined by our greatest accomplishments and our deepest, darkest failures. But when we enter into the waters of baptism, 
What is communicated is that by your grace and through your spirit, by an act of faith that is a gift from you, our old lives die and are buried with you that we might rise to a new life with you as well. That for the rest of the days that we live on this planet, that we would live in a body that scripture says is like a tent. It is wasting away. But our body doesn't consist of just the flesh anymore. Our life is in you, God. And so I pray for those here in this place. God, I pray if there's somebody here who hasn't been baptized yet, who has not yet seen their identity as a child of God, and they have not heard the promises spoken over them as you spoke them over your son, God, would you call them? That maybe this morning they would come up after the service and say, I want to be baptized. I want to be faithful. I want to follow you. I want to find my identity in you. And God, for many of us here, we've been baptized. We've heard the story. We, we know the gospel. But every day we wake up in the morning and, and we're trying to make a name for ourselves. So help us to see how silly that really is. When we're already seen as a son of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the creator of the universe says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, what could we possibly do in our own flesh that would even compare to any of that? And so help us to know that we are yours. And because we are yours, that is who we are. As we open our eyes, we remember that promise and the way it's communicated in what you started with your disciples and you continue in your presence with us. That on the night that you were betrayed, you took bread and you broke it. And you said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you eat this, remember me. After the supper, you took the cup of blessing, gave thanks, and gave it for all to drink, saying, take and drink this cup. It's the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink this, remember me. As often as we eat this bread and as often as we, we drink from this cup, we're reminded that God lives with us. And the one who lives in us is infinitely more powerful than the world around so if you believe that to be true, no matter what your background, who you are, where you've been, where you're going, the only response is to surrender. And so we do that by opening up our hands. As we open up our hands, we, we let go of ourselves and we take on who God says us to be. We pray, not our own words, but they become our own words as we pray the way Jesus has taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. If you believe that Jesus is your Lord,